You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. I'm always really happy to see new faces, new people to meet, and I see quite a few today. If you're joining us as our guest this morning, you're actually coming in on the very last sermon in a sermon series through the book of Philippians called Connoisseurs of Happiness, in which we have been using this book of Philippians, this letter of the Apostle Paul, which is often referred to as the Epistle of Joy, because a central theme running through the life and teaching and in particular this letter of Paul, is happiness that we have in Christ and pursuing a growing happiness in him that magnifies and increases our ability to glorify our God by being satisfied in him. So we're coming right at the end of this letter, but there's also more good news because actually next Sunday we are going to transition into the book of Galatians, and we will be doing, just as we have with Philippians, preaching, uh, as we usually do, verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And in that book, we're going to be really looking for how the grace of God in the gospel is superior to the bad news of the law, that even though God's law comes to us and delivers bad news because we are sinners and we've broken God's commands and there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves or certainly to impress God with our works, that the good news of the gospel is an announcement of our freedom and our redemption in Christ by faith alone, by grace alone. And so we'll be considering that throughout the book of Galatians coming up over the coming months, but today we want to bring this letter to a close, and uh, we do that in a kind of challenging way. You know, preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, as we do, uh, is a real joy in our church. I hope it's a joy to those who are listening to these sermons. It's certainly a joy to those of us who are preaching them. And uh, one of the things that happens in expositional preaching is uh, you cannot skip you, you cannot skip the hard parts. You cannot skip the sad parts. We preach the happy parts. We preach the hard parts. And we also preach the mundane parts. And that sometimes makes expository preaching challenging. This is one of those Sundays. Because you can listen to our text here of what Paul says at the very end. It's essentially the end of the letter as he's signing off. And he says in verse 21, "'Greet every saint in Christ Jesus.'" The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, many of you, like I do when I come across a passage like this that I have to preach, say to myself, as you would to me, okay, well, let's see what you do with this one, because uh, it can be challenging until, until you remind yourself of the truth that every word in the scriptures is inspired. There are no passing, meaningless, low-level words. They are all important, all inspired, all for our benefit and profit. And so it's our delight to preach even the the signing off of the Apostle Paul to this letter to the Philippians. And we want to do that this morning by, by bringing together some key truths and noticing three important points from this text really about the Christian life. 
really about the way that the Apostle Paul saw the Christian life and the way that he interacted with other believers, because that's, of course, what this is. It's a letter that he's writing to other Christians. And so if you're taking notes, this is the first truth that we want to see this morning, and it is simply that the Christian's disposition is centered on grace. I've titled this sermon, Grace, the First and Last Word, because I think it's most fitting to what we're going to see this morning in verses 21 through 23. And so I want to leave you, rather I should say I want to leave us because we're in this together, as Paul does with a final word. We're coming to the end of this letter, and Paul gives a final word. These could be, in his mind, he knows, the last words that he speaks to these dear fellow saints of his. And what we find is something striking, something powerful, something life-changing, and that is that for Paul, the last word is always grace. And for us as Christians, grace is always the last word. Notice what he says in verse 23. Skip past 21 and 22 and catch this in verse 23. He says, as his very last sentence of the letter, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here he uses this very familiar to us as Christians and in the Bible, very familiar word, grace, which actually the word that he uses is the word charis. And as we know from what we know the word grace to mean, Paul means the same, that grace is unmerited favor. That's what makes the Christian life different from every other religion in the world. That while every other religion sets a course by which men and women try to earn or gain the favor of God by something that they give, In return for that favor, Christianity is radically, wildly different. That we have come to know God, we have come to be forgiven of our sin, we have come to be assured, and we have come to become happy because of grace. Because of not something we've done, not some list of commands that we've kept, and once we got through 60%, then, then we've made it, but rather because of unmerited favor. That's what this word charis means. Unmerited favor, unmerited kindness, unmerited goodwill from God. And this is a striking passage, as always, coming to the end of these letters of Paul is striking to me because we we get to see what he wants his final lasting words ringing in their ears to be. And his last word is grace. Everyone should consider what they want their last words to be. And maybe you have done that. Maybe you have thought about if for some reason God has planned that the end of my life would allow me some window of sanity and clarity, a moment of time that I could think about what I'll communicate to my family or those who happen to be around me at that time. Or maybe I'm going to know that my death is coming and write something down. What would that be? For many of us, and we, we hear this when there are tragedies, like 9-11 coming up, we're, we have this kind of haunting set of recordings of people who have, who have actually left their last words on, on voicemails to their, their loved ones as they knew that something really bad was happening and that their lives may come to an end. And 
<clears throat> so often those last words are powerful things like, I love you. Um, some of those are, I'm sorry. Some of the last words of others, like Jane Austen, I want nothing but death, striking last words. Or Beethoven, applaud, my friends, the comedy is finished. Or even Charles Darwin, very interesting last words for Charles Darwin, I am not the least afraid to die. So I ask you, what would your last words be? What would be the last thing that you would say? What do you want to be your your standing legacy, the last moment in which we hear you utter in one way or another the words that mean the most to you because that's what last words are? Well, notice this this morning that the last words of the Apostle Paul are always grace, always. In fact, I think this is so important. I'm going to actually read for you one by one, follow along, not by flipping, just in your mind, but follow along as you hear the last words of Paul's writings in the Bible. Hear the theme, hear the resounding, reverberating tone of God's unmerited favor and kindness and goodwill in Christ by grace alone. These are the last words of Paul's writings in Romans. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, so be it, or amen. 1 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters, amen. Ephesians, grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Colossians, grace be with you. First Thessalonians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Second Thessalonians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. First Timothy, grace be with you all. Second Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you all. Titus, grace be with all of you. Philemon, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Do you get it? Think about that. Every time he closes, his last word is grace. I remember in a church that, uh, actually the church that Catherine and I were married in uh, 23 years ago, um, there was a guy, an an older guy, saint in the church, uh, I think he was a deacon and, you know, well-respected guy, huge energy, full of energy, uh, always walking around. And every day, no matter time of day, what day it was, no matter what was going on, when you asked Clarence Nemitz, how he was doing, he always said one word. He always said, perfect. And that was always kind of striking to us, you know, because, you know, of course, we know that's not true. Not yet. None of us are perfect. But that's what he wanted to present. That's what he wanted other people to think of when they asked him how he was doing. That's, that's how he, he pitched to other people his view of his life. He, he was apparently incredibly happy, uh, incredibly satisfied to say every day, perfect. Well, now think about what the Apostle Paul says with his last words every time someone asks him how he's doing. Every time he says grace. 
And not only grace for himself and about himself, but Paul's thing, similar to Clarence Nimitz, Paul's thing was that he wished upon you God's unmerited favor, kindness, and goodwill. The Apostle Paul knew that grace, not law, grace, not personal obedience, grace, not willpower, grace, not self-esteem, grace, was at the blazing center of the Christian life. It was by far his favorite concept. It would be like having a favorite child that you would show off to everyone else. You love all of your children, but there is one in particular that you have as a favorite. We play a game. It's a joke. Everyone knows it's a joke in our family when we tell one child in front of the others that that child is the favorite, right? We don't really have favorites, do we? But imagine that. If we were to show off one, well, the Apostle Paul's favorite child of all the beautiful theological children that he has, mercy, love, peace, hope, they all find their center in his favorite term, which is grace. He comes back to grace over and over and over again. In fact, if you were to flip back to the very beginning of Philippians, you would find that it's not only his last word, but it's also his first word. And that's true of the Christian life, isn't it? Your Christian life and mine begins with nothing, nothing but grace. And your Christian life and mine in Christ will end with nothing, nothing but grace. Notice what he says at the very beginning of Philippians, which not too long ago we were there. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his favorite. So the first application of, of even this, this simple truth about our disposition in the Christian life is that it is centered on grace and therefore a central big part of the Christian life ought to be receiving it day in and day out as your first word and as your last word receiving and pursuing and delighting in and soaking up grace, adopting grace as your favorite child, as the one thing in your life that you will continually delight in as central and the one thing in your life that you want to present to the world as most important, and that is absolutely grace. The more that we can capture this truth, the more that it will change everything about our lives.
It changes everything about the way that we interact with God, the way that we have a a relational dynamic, which we're going to talk a lot about in the book of Galatians coming up next week and moving forward. That's what it's about. The the distinction between the law of the, the bad news of the law and the good news of the gospel and how it helps and changes us. It changes the way we relate to God. It changes the way that we relate to other people. When we have conflict with one another, whether it's in marriage or or family, or friendships, or out in our community, we know this. The trouble always comes the day that grace leaves. And therefore, we want to keep grace close, keep grace central to everything that that we do and the way that we see the world, because this is what the Apostle Paul does, and this is what he leaves us with, just as he did our brothers and sisters in Philippi so long ago. The second truth that we'll see this morning in conclusion of this letter is that Christians, Christians, because we have a disposition of grace and because it's central to our lives, we have a unique grace-centered bond to every Christian. Notice verse 21. Sometimes we look at parts of verses. We've said this before. It's a good reminder. And uh, if we talk about the first part, we would call it 21a. If we talk about the second part, we call it 21b. Just to keep that straight in our minds as we want to know God's word well, look at verse 21b. It's the second sentence. Notice what he says. He says, actually in the very beginning, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. But then he says, the brothers who are with me send you greetings. What he's doing is he's bringing together in the the closing of this letter all of the believers who are united together in Christ, who are family. Even though they're separated by distance, they're separated by circumstance, the Philippians had been helping from a distance, Paul's missionary journey, but he is reminding us of the unique bond that every Christian has. As you've seen throughout Philippians and throughout all of Paul's writings, The Apostle Paul really does have a special affinity and love for God's people. And it really supersedes everything and everyone else except God himself. He has a special love for God's people. And of course, this makes sense. It makes sense that the Apostle Paul would have a special love for God's people because God has a special love for God's people. God does not love everyone the same. That's obvious. He does not love everyone the same. Yes, God loves the whole world. And in a general way, the whole world benefits and enjoys the the blessings of his love. But there's a difference between the whole world and God's precious people, whom he's called out of the world and brought to himself. He's bestowed on them. He's bestowed on us a special love, a special kind of grace. And it's the grace that Paul talks about here and everywhere. He has a special love for his people and it's given to them by grace alone. That's why it's, it's, it's no arrogant boasting of ours to, to talk about God's incredible love for us because it, it's not something that we have earned. It's not something we have gained. Uh, we've not merited it. We've already made that clear. Grace is unmerited favor. And God inspires then this kind of grace greeting to every Christian. 
Because it is, in the same way that we would say the gospel is, grace is what holds Christian people together. And therefore, every Christian with Paul who have been influenced by him and this grace-centered life of his and this message of the gospel that he's proclaimed so clearly is that every Christian with him then sends their greeting of grace. If you could think about it this way in your mind, think about Paul and those believers around where he is in his ministry and life and in towns or in prison and others to whom he's writing letters, here's what that relationship is. It's a constant volley back and forth of grace upon grace upon grace. Everything about their relationship keeps coming back to that. He keeps firing over the sea grace to those who are far away. They hear from him and they fire it back again because all of their lives have been united, not by some hobby, not by some interest that they have, not by blood, but their lives have been united together by grace by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for them by bestowing on them, that's us, bestowing on us a special kind of love. A love that redeems, a love that comforts, a love that forgives, a love that carries us with perseverance to the very end. And therefore, this is what comes, brings them together. This is their focus when they're together. We see kind of little shadows of this in the ordinary, everyday world, even in our own lives, because we do have, beyond you know, the Christian life, we do have interests, right? Everyone in here has interests. You have things that you, you love. You, you like to watch certain things on TV, or, or you have other hobbies that you like to partake in. When you find someone else that enjoys that same thing, it draws you together, doesn't it? In fact, what you typically do is you start to kind of nerd out on that thing as soon as you find, here's another person. You know, I've noticed that, that runners do this. When they meet someone else out in the world who also likes to run, they start to nerd out on all of the details and the, the training and the, the race that just happened and, and, and how they're progressing and all of that. And it happens with everything. Well, sports fans get together and they realize they could be in two, uh, you know, far away from home in one common location, and even in another country, and they find each other and they realize they have this in common, so they, they talk about it. Those who love productivity hacks and how they can be more effective in their jobs and lives and manage their time, they get together and they, they hash that out. It can be even something as simple as, as comic books. You find someone who, who loves something like comic books or video games or whatever it may be. It's something that brings them together. They gravitate to each other. And they also, if you notice, aim to expand the network of runners or comic book lovers or whatever the case this is an earthly shadow of the supernatural reality of what it means to be a Christian. When you find another Christian, you realize that beyond everything else, all of the other good gifts, all the hobbies, all the sports, that you are united around a person, a person who is the embodiment of this very thing, which is grace. And there's this unique kind of connection. We're trying to move forward 
in our church with these connections. We, we have been doing this from the beginning, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard for us to have this kind of connection because we know that we all have remaining sin. This is one of the hardest things for any healthy church to do, which is to have these close, tight-knit relationships that do keep the gospel first, that will prioritize the grace above law and conflict and sin and everything else to try to stay together. We do this through community group life. If you're new to our church, one of the important things in our church is being a part of a, a small group of believers who meet on a regular basis to encourage one another and apply the truth to our lives. And then, of course, be there during the happy times and during the hard times and to walk together through the mundane times. But I'm reminded as I read this text here, of just how important that is and how important it was to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not a person who acted like an evangelist with little care for real relationships. It's very easy for someone who loves evangelism, like I do, to think that that's the most important thing. And what really matters is that we get the word out about the gospel and we get as many people to convert as possible. And then once you see, say, you just move on to the next and just keep going, keep going, keep going. That is nothing to do with the way the Apostle Paul lived his life. Because you hear this over and over again. He keeps calling brothers and sisters back together. He keeps uh, admiring them. He continues to draw close to them and unite them. And it's a reminder to me that this is hard. It's hard work. It takes a real concerted effort. And we want to try to keep making that concerted effort together. If you're not involved in something like a community group or you feel like you don't have those kinds of relationships in our church, then you should pursue them. You should pursue them with all that you have. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be a little uncomfortable. It's probably going to be messy. But we're reminded here that we do have this unique bond together. And in fact, that God has set up things in the Christian life in such a way that it's this kind of gathering together that we will enjoy for all eternity. That's what heaven's going to be. It's going to be people together with him, centered on his grace and enjoying an eternal new heavens and new earth together, a future life together without sin. But in the meantime, we're really challenged and we're really called to make the most of these relationships now. And therefore, we should be thinking about what we need to tweak to make sure that we're connecting with believers, that we're prioritizing those relationships over others, over other relationships, and seeking, of course, just as Paul does, new believers that can become part of God's family by grace alone. And maybe, maybe he would call those, some of those to become part of our little, our, our little corner of, the, of, of, of his family, our church. And so we continue to pray and look for those opportunities. The last truth that we want to see this morning, though, is uh, one that brings us back to the central theme, really the central theme of this letter. And that theme is, of course, happiness. We have been... Uh, turned upside down in some ways. We have been surprised and confounded by the centrality of happiness in the Christian life. We've said over these recent months and noticed just how much that has been lost for us as, as Christians in this, in this modern moment. For some reason, we have, we have, we've lost our love of Christian happiness. 
We, we think that there are all of these other things to pursue, and in fact that happiness is something that's selfish and we should not pursue it in Christ, but we've seen quite the opposite. In fact, it is the way that we glorify God. And so the last uh, truth that we want to see this morning is simply this, that at the center of the Christian life, bringing these truths together, is a happiness that comes through rejoicing over those who are called out from the world. Paul's happiness in the Christian life that he writes about so much and that, that we're thinking better and better thoughts about really does have to do with the growing kingdom of God. It is fueling the reach of the church to, to help other people come to know Christ so that we can become part of the same family. And of course, we've seen that Paul loved Christians and naturally he wanted to see more. He wanted more and more people. I think it was the thing that he woke up every morning with on his mind is how is God going to work to save more people than to bring them into his covenant love and to bring them into my family? Therefore, it makes sense as we even see in this text and so many other places where Paul writes that he delighted in Christians who came to faith from anywhere it was a central aspect of his, his joyful heart, his rejoicing to see someone pass from death to life, from darkness into the light of God's beloved son, all by faith in Christ because of the work of grace in their hearts. But in particular, we see here that Paul had a special kind of happiness for those who became Christians from unusual places. Look at verse 22. He says again, all the saints send you greetings. But then he says this, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. These are people who have come to Christ in what may appear to be an unlikely way. It, it, it seems in our just kind of uh, practical minds, unlikely, that any of the people he's mentioning in verse 22b that they would come to Christ because they've come out of Caesar's household. But he's rejoicing about this. And he's rejoicing about this because he sees everyone as he does every believer as a long lost brother or sister who has come home and has come into his family. I think we've discussed this at some point in the last 10 years and it probably does us good to discuss it again. What would you do if I told you that out in our community, let's just restrict it to Columbus, that there were 5,000 long lost brothers and sisters of yours, people that you don't know who they are, you don't know what they look like, they certainly don't look like you, they don't come from the same neighborhood that you do, they don't necessarily speak the same language that you do, but out there somewhere are 5,000 of your brothers and sisters whom you would spend the rest of your life with once you meet them and find them, what would you do? I wonder if sometimes that's what keeps me from sharing the gospel as I could. With the kind of joy and the kind of zeal and excitement and, and grace that I could. Because if I'm honest with you, I don't normally think about people that way, people that I want to share the gospel with. And what I think that does is it leads me to be more of a law preacher. It me leads me to be the kind of person that, that doesn't see them as people 
who are my potential family, but as just people to convert, people to yell at for a while and see if they change. But imagine, imagine if I thought about other people this way, that they might be revealed as a long lost brother or sister whom I would spend the rest of my life with and are central to my happiness and their happiness as together we glorify our father who has brought us together. It would change things. I think that's a little bit more of the way the apostle Paul saw the world, the way that he thought about people. Because he knew that God from eternity past had chosen his elect out of the world and it was only a matter of time that he would save them and bring them in. And he knew that he would not lose even one of them. That on the day of judgment or in the end in the new heavens and the new earth, that God the Father is not going to be looking around wondering where is Sally? Where is Fred? Where's George? Did he not make it? He's not going to look around for a moment. Everyone is going to be there. It changes the way that we think about this. And they come from incredible places that glorify God in a way even more. Because they come from unlikely places. That's what he gets at in verse 22. There's a special group sending their greetings, and they're referred to by him as those of Caesar's household. So, so these seem to be servants in Caesar's household or officials or others who were associated with the, the imperial administration. And it's striking that they would become Christians. It's amazing. Can you think of people in your life like that? Think about the people that you think are least likely to come to faith. It might be because of the way that they right now see God. They've, they've been through really hard, traumatic times, and they're having a hard time recognizing God's loving sovereignty in the midst of their suffering. And maybe that's what's keeping them right now from coming to faith in Christ. Or maybe it's because they come from another part of the world. They have an entirely different worldview. And it's just hard to imagine that anything is going to break through that worldview and, and open their eyes to what is really true according to the Bible and what God is really like. It could be because you think about them and you recognize that they're so deep and embedded in, in some other religious viewpoint or some other view of worship and you just don't see how is that ever going to change that's who these people are they're so embedded in their culture and in the politics of their day and the authority structure of, of their society that most people would say how in the world are those servants and those officials ever going to come to faith in christ i just don't see it and that's why he rejoices when it happens. Because he knows how surprising it is for them to come out of this social, political context. That's the way it is for people today. The faith is equated to disloyalty. For them, it was disloyalty to Caesar. And it's in contradiction to the Roman religious practices. And therefore, it's hard to imagine how are they ever going to come to faith in Christ. Or, like I said, because they have a conflicted worldview. And, and how in the world are they going to exchange their polytheism for the monotheism, the worship of the one true God and him alone? 
It's amazing that these who are of Caesar's household came to faith because it almost certainly, almost certainly guaranteed that they would be persecuted and quite likely put to death. And it's just amazing to think that anyone could, could overcome that pressure and place their trust in Christ firmly and happily. Or even just short of that, to lose all of their social privileges. Because as soon as they came to faith, they would be outcast, maligned, excluded. And therefore, he says in verse 22, all the saints, dear Philippians, who have been giving to my ministry, you've been helping me in this missionary cause to take the good news around the world to Jews and Gentiles. He blessed them at the end of the letter with this incredible gift by saying, oh, by the way, especially those who belong to Caesar's household are right here. And they're saying, make sure you said you tell them, I said hello. Make sure they know that I'm here too and I'm with them and I'm with you. So all of those, those believers are sending their greetings. And I think it's also true for those who came out of Caesar's household that they are delighted to send their greeting because they know how unlikely it was too. They look back and they see as an incredible miracle. How did I ever come out of that? That's the picture of the Christian life. That's one of the reasons that Paul rejoices. And that's kind of a concluding truth for us as well. Because I think that all of us could be a little bit more like these believers who have come out of Caesar's household. I could be more like them in that way. Sometimes I think of it as just a given. Well, I grew up in a Christian family, grew up going to church, live in the United States, Christian nation. Of course, of course I'm a Christian. But that's not true, is it? It was very unlikely that I would become a Christian. It was very unlikely that you would become a Christian. But look what God did. Look at how he overcame all of that. And he has brought us to faith in Christ. It's all the more reason for us to rejoice. Because our God delights in saving the least expected people so that he could magnify his grace and the gospel in them, in us, through us, through these to whom Paul is writing and those who are with him in this moment. Therefore, this brings this letter to a striking conclusion of what it means to be a Christian, that we are united together, and we're united by something so marvelous as grace, something that this world doesn't know anything about. This is otherworldly. This is an alien kind of righteousness that has come in, and that's why the most unlikely you and I have come to faith in Christ because God has reached down and he has done this. And not only that, he has delivered to us ultimate happiness. We should not let our pursuit of happiness end with Philippians. Please don't do that. That would be a dishonor to the Apostle Paul. That would be a dishonor to the Bible. That would be a dishonor to the gospel to think that, oh, well, we're done with that letter. That was the letter about happiness. Now let's move on. 
they're all letters about happiness. They're all letters about rejoicing. That's why the most frequent command in the Bible is not obey. It's not repent. It's not do good. It's be happy. Because that's how we glorify God. And so as a final concluding application, it's a general one to encompass this letter, the Bible, our lives. Be happy. Because of the gospel. Because that is the way. It is the way that we glorify God. So we want to continue pursuing this even as we move into other books of the Bible and we move forward as a church and in all of our efforts to to make the gospel paramount everywhere that we go. We want to be at the center, this happiness over the grace of God. And it will be a challenge. It'll be a fight for us. There are things inside our, our flesh. There are things in our world. Even our enemy would love to slow us down and stop us from that, but We know that God is up to the task, and so we want to entrust ourselves to him this morning, and we want to carry these truths into our singing so that they'll carry us forward as we consider again, starting next week, even more about this incredible gospel that God has given to us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should come to faith in Christ today. This should be the day of your salvation. I don't have any idea what you're waiting for, I don't have any idea why you wouldn't because Jesus Christ has done all and delivered it by grace alone and you should receive it. And if you choose to do that and God so leads you to place your trust in Christ and he calls you to himself, then you should let us know about that. If not today, but you feel like God is doing something in your heart and you wanna talk more about this, there's nothing that would make us happier. No matter how unlikely it seems that you would become a Christian, we want to talk about it. We want to pray for it. And we want to see what God does. Let me invite you now to stand as you're able to prepare our hearts to sing. And I'm going to pray for us as we move from this letter into the next that God will keep feeding these seeds of truth in our hearts. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks because you are faithful to give us your word. And you're faithful to carry us through your word. Lord, it has been a help and a delight to us to spend these months in the book of Philippians. And we certainly pray that you would not allow any of the seeds of truth to fall to the ground uh, and fail to take root, but all of them would take root in our hearts. We pray that you'd help us to focus our minds, focus our hearts together as a church, as believers, as brothers and sisters and friends, that we would walk together in these truths and that we would remain on a fervent pursuit to maximize the gladness that we have because of you. We know that that will glorify you. And so we pray that you would glorify yourself by working, working that in us. And we pray you would even do it now as we continue to sing together. And we pray these words, the theology of our songs would uplift us and comfort us and strengthen us and carry us forward together today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.